Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Quick note before we start the show, if you haven't yet, go check out my new website, unchainedpodcast.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter, which comes out every Friday. You can sign up right at the top of the homepage at unchainedpodcast.com. Are you ready for global cryptocurrency money laundering regulations? CypherTrace secures the crypto economy with powerful AML tools for exchanges, crypto businesses, and regulators. My guest today is Dan Moorhead, CEO of Pantera Capital. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Laura. How has this crypto winter changed how you and Pantera are approaching your investments? Well, this is actually our second crypto winter. We were around in the 2014-15 crypto winter. So we are always trying to think out, you know, five or 10 years in our investing and um, be looking at the positions that would do well over a long period of time and trying not to be too wrapped up in the kind of the cycles of the price action. And if you think about it, you know, blockchains themselves are like early stage venture, but with a real time price feed. And so it, <laughs> it does add a huge distraction, I think, to the markets. And so how do you think this crypto winter differs from the previous one? Yeah, so I, I would admit that the, in the previous one, I had more kind of kind of a, a worry in the pit of my stomach, whether blockchain was really going to work. And, you know, there are some uh, real obvious regulatory risks that w- could have happened. And this one, um, I think the underlying fundamentals are much, much stronger than they were in the 2014-15 um, crypto winter. And it, it might be uh, this kind of a coincidence, but it's funny that Craig Wright pops up <laughs> at the end of uh, crypto winters that he did in 2016. And maybe his uh, kind of reemergence might be another indication that this crypto winter might be ending soon. And, and why do you, why do you say that? Like why, what about him in particular? Oh, it's just funny that um, his first outing came uh, in 2016, right at the consensus uh, summit time. And that was really when the prices stopped their long, long uh, crypto winter and really exploded up from there. And it just might be a funny uh, coincidence that his reemergence with the uh, with the fork might be the sign that the second coming has, has arrived and we can get on with rallying the markets instead of kind of hand wringing about, about the, the limitations. And earlier you mentioned that you think the underlying fundamentals are strong. So what are you looking at when you say that? Well, people have been talking for years about the impending uh, institutional wave of money coming into the markets. And I think we now actually have the required uh, conditions for that to happen. 
institutional investors really want to have a custodian that's uh, you know well known and regulated. Um, and we really haven't had that in the past. There's some great exchanges out there, some great custodians like Zappo, but we really haven't had a, a the kind of global name that it would take to get institutional investors in. But now you have uh, firms like ICE's Backed or Fidelity or ErisX um, doing, you know, very institutional grade custody over the next few months. And I think that'll help uh, bring institutions in. The one thing that is true though, is institutions are just like the rest of us. They're probably pretty pro cyclical and um, the big wave of institutional money will, will probably not start in earnest until the prices themselves start going up. And we've seen that in the two full cycles, Pantera has been managing crypto funds massive amount of interest when the prices are, are screaming up and then when they crash down, which is actually probably a great time to buy the interest, you know, kind of goes back to neutral. Yeah. That it just seems counterintuitive to me because I guess it's supposed to be that you get in when the prices are low, but you're saying that they'll only start to get in when the prices start to go up. And yet they're the ones, everybody says that they'll make the prices go up. <laughs> Yeah. So buy low, sell high would be, you know, very effective strategy. But, um, for, for some reason that I think the crypto market's even more extreme than the normal, uh, markets where, um, the inflows into our Bitcoin fund have been massively pro cyclical. And we launched the fund when Bitcoin was at $65 and very few investors came in until the price got to four or 500. And then when it hit a thousand, uh, in 2013, we had massive inflows. And then when the market did its um, crypto winter, you know, it, it really dried up. And we saw the same thing in the last cycle that very few investors invested when uh, the price was below a thousand, even though it spent over half of the time from 2016 on below a thousand, very few people invested then. But when it got to two, three, four thousand, it started picking up and then it 10 or 15,000, we saw massive interest in, in uh, investing in Bitcoin. And it's kind of the same now with the markets down 75%. You would think this is a great time to invest, but most people are essentially just kind of sitting on the sidelines, not, not uh, adding, but not redeeming, just kind of waiting. Yeah, it's interesting. It goes back to what a lot of people say about how this is a retail led phenomenon. So it's almost like the institutions don't want to get in until they sort of see that there's retail uptake or something. I think so. And we actually had uh, a few investors that were very brave in the last crypto winter. And I remember one put $5 million in and took $200 million out at the highs uh, in 2017. So mm -hmm. some people do it, but it's it's pretty rare. And I think institutions are probably more um, conservative than you know, even the high net worth individuals that are our typical LPs. Okay. But you think that once we see these kind of more brand name custody players enter the space, then that will give some of these institutions confidence to, to come in in a bigger way. I do. I think that's been the, the gating factor that large institutions want, a, you know, a, more institutional custodian like backed or fidelity. And once those come in, people will start buying and that'll, that'll start the price moving up. But the, the massive 
amount of investment probably won't occur until the price has already really gotten going. And to go back to how I started the conversation. So how are you changing your approach to investments? Like, you know, I don't know whether you're investing in tokens versus equity or, you know, just any other kind of different approach you're taking. Sure. So we invest across the entire spectrum. Uh, We invest in pre-auction ICOs and liquid blockchains and venture. And that has changed dramatically over the last couple of years. There's this perception that ICOs were invented in May 2017 at Token Summit or Consensus, and they kind of did their thing and they're over. The reality is ICOs were invented in 2013, and Ethereum did its in 2014, and Augur in 2015. So there were some very important projects, but they were very rare. And essentially, that's what we've gone back to. There's still some very important ICO projects that we're investing in, but they're only every few months that we're investing in a project. And at the peak of the mania, we were seeing 50 white papers a week. So it was, it was, uh, you know, massively crowded market. And now the pendulum swung back to venture. Um, the venture space had kind of been, uh, all the oxygen in the room had been sucked up in 2018. They did 19 billion of ICOs and only 4 billion of venture. I think 2019 is going to be the opposite. Venture is going to be much bigger than ICOs. And so we're investing in a lot of projects, particularly around um, scalability. That's the kind of the current issue for the blockchain space. The main two blockchains do about seven transactions per second and um, must scale to be relevant. And so we've invested in in four or five uh, projects in the scalability space. We're also interested in fiat on ramps and onboarding to crypto because it's still kind of clunky. So we're investing in companies that help people get money in and out of um, the crypto space. And then there's still some exchange markets that haven't been fully built out. We invested in BACs, bringing, you know, institutional grade exchange. Uh, And then there's some countries that, that do not yet have a dominant exchange. So we're, we're investing there. In a moment, we're going to keep discussing institutional money and also talk about some other projects that Dan is interested in. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. Ready or not, the Financial Action Task Force anti-money laundering recommendations soon go into effect globally. If you handle cryptocurrencies, no matter where you do business, these new AML laws will apply to you. CypherTrace helps exchanges, ICOs, funds, brokerages, and regulators understand and manage crypto asset and compliance risks. Learn how to reduce your exposure and prepare now for tough new regulations. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. Learn more at CypherTrace.com slash unconfirmed. I just wanted to circle back to our discussion about institutional money because you had said that what's different for you in this crypto winter is that you don't have any doubts anymore about whether or not blockchain will be a thing. And are you seeing that shift also happen amongst institutions where they feel confident this is going to be part of the future or, or no? Oh, I think so. If, if you look at the number of multinational corporations that now have either direct investments in blockchain companies or are doing blockchain projects themselves, it's just night and day compared to a year or two ago when almost you know no um, big brand was involved. So you're seeing a lot of you know very 
um, important companies getting into the blockchain space. And then also to ask when we were discussing the custody issue and you talked about how there are some crypto startups that do custody and do it well, like Zappo and Coinbase, I guess would probably be some of the names that come to mind. And yet we have also things like Fidelity's custody service for Bitcoin, at least that's going to launch in March. And then we have, you know, some of these other players coming online. So what impact do you think that will have on those startups? There's always a race um, between, you know, innovators building something and the legacy companies deciding when to, to engage a market. And I think ultimately many of our portfolio companies will get acquired by these legacy financial firms that have yet to, to establish themselves in the space. Um, custody is one example where uh, the existing custodians like BitGo and Zappo have a massive market share in the uh, crypto space. And you could imagine a legacy custodian wanting to acquire a company like like uh, one of those. So let's talk about more. Let's talk more about some of these projects that you have invested in or are interested in. One of them that I wanted to ask about was the Kin token, which you invested in. The company that created it, Kick, plans to fight the SEC against an expected enforcement action against them for their ICO. And right now, I feel like I've been hearing a lot from different people in the industry who are either working on these like workarounds to try to avoid U.S. customers and the SEC. And then also I have people saying to me that they think that this situation is sending entrepreneurs and innovation out of the U.S. What's your take on how regulatory uncertainty is affecting the crypto space and what do you think can be done about it? Well, I think most countries have been neutral to blockchain. There's a few like Luxembourg that are very progressive and are trying to help blockchain thrive. In in the United States, the regulatory bodies most have already ruled. So the IRS and the CFTC, the SEC is in the middle of um, figuring out what standards to set on what things will be securities and what won't be securities. I think within the next six to nine months, that will be sorted out. And once it's uh, clear, it'll be easier for exchanges and investors uh, to know how to handle these different types of assets. So I think within the next nine months, that will probably get fully sorted out. And why why that timeline? Is that because you know kind of like, you know, what conversations your your projects are having with the SEC? Or I, like, I guess the other reason that I ask this is that I would characterize the way the SEC has approached this so far is to not give too much clarity in a way almost to, um, you know, how people complain about how the bit license was like too much too early. And uh, so it's almost like the SEC is like trying to leave a little breathing room for the technology as well, in a certain way. Um, You know, the flip side of that, of course, is this uncertainty. But yeah, why, why do you feel like there will be some clarity? Oh, it's just an intuition that, as you said, the SEC has allowed this to develop you know, for nine years and a huge amount of the, um, creativity is happening in the United States, but it feels like, you know, cases like you mentioned, like, uh, kick and, and others out there probably will have some resolution, you know, in a period of, you know, many quarters, not many years or decades. And then the question about whether innovation is going to happen in the U S or outside the U S is fascinating. Obviously blockchain is borderless. So we're, looking everywhere 
uh, around the world to find investments. We've actually traveled to 30 different countries and huge amount of time looking for projects in every corner of the world. We actually recently did our uh, statistics on our portfolio and 70% of those projects are in the United States. So even though we've really put an amazing effort into finding them, uh, and we have invested in Africa and Latin America and the Middle East and North Asia, South Asia, everywhere. Um, but ultimately, 70% are in the U.S. Many of those uh, entrepreneurs are um, uh, foreign and, you know, come to the U.S. because of its its infrastructure. And then the, the wild uh, stat is 70% of the ones that are in the U.S. are within five miles of our offices in Silicon Valley. So mm-hmm. it is very concentrated in the United States. And then within the United States, it's um, fairly, very concentrated in Silicon Valley. Yeah. I recently did an episode with Eric Meltzer and Dovey Wan of Primitive Ventures, and it was kind of all about their, you know, they're, they kind of know a lot about Asia, but they did say that they felt like the more interesting technology was here in the U.S. However, they thought that a lot of the good startups and, th- you know, things like exchanges and whatever are happening in in uh, Asia. Um, but yeah, so that brings me, actually, I wanted to loop back when you were talking about how you're investing in scalability and fiat on-ramps and exchanges and stuff like that. In general, what trends are you seeing in terms of the development in the space, whether it's in terms of where the technology is going or just where do you think uh, the industry will be going over the next year or so? Well, the one thing that is working quite well is the cross-border money movement application for Bitcoin. And um a week or so ago, we announced that we sold Coins.ph in the Philippines. And I think that's a great example of Bitcoin's actual usage now and not, you know, 20 years from now, what, what blockchain is going to do. And they have one out of every 10 adults in the Philippines as a, as a customer. You know, that's, that's very real. And I think it's, it's important for the, the community to really know that, you know, there are applications that are working right now rather than, you know, some of the naysayers that, you know, complain that, um, you know, throughput's not very high and all those things. It's, um, you know, there are applications that are working quite well. We're um, also investing in um, companies like Blockfolio that are helping people manage their portfolios. There are projects like Starkware that are very important for scalability. Um, there's a few other important projects that we're um, following, like Blocksroot or Arbitrum that as well could add literally orders of magnitude of scalability to the underlying blockchains. And I'm sorry, which one was that block? What? Blocks root. Oh, blocks root. Right, right, right. B L O X root. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In general, um, I, I wanted to ask you about the scalability, like on what timeline do you think we're going to, cause I, cause my take is that, until that issue is resolved, I don't think we're going to see the same kind of um, upswing in the industry that we saw in 2017. That's that's actually just a personal thesis of mine. So how quickly do you think we'll see these scaling solutions really make a difference? I think it's on the order of a couple of years. It's going to take a few years for these projects. There are a dozen different approaches being taken. We're invested in probably six or eight of them. Obviously, not all of them are going to work, but I'm very confident that at least a few of them will work. And each one offers an order of magnitude or two of scalability. So, uh, and it's multiplicative if if um, several of them work. So, I think over the next couple of years, you're going to see 
blockchains be able to scale at least 100x. And then the, the, the perspective would be it doesn't have to have fully sorted out all these problems for the usage uh, to increase and for the prices to go up. And it, it, when people complain about the lack of throughput on, you know, say Bitcoin or Ethereum today, it, to me, it kind of reminds me of, it'd be kind of like people complaining about TCP IP sucking in the early nineties. Cause you couldn't stream Netflix to your iPhone yet. Right. It's just, these protocols will do this. It takes years for it to happen, but that doesn't mean you can't, you know, discount that eventuality in the price today. Yeah, I, I was asked once in an interview whether or not I thought these would never scale in. And I just was like, if you look at the history of technology, there are a lot of things where at a certain point in time, it seemed impossible that something would happen. And yet later it happened. So, um, so I, I'm with you on on that. But my big question is, you know, which scaling solution? However, I guess uh, we will have to wait and see which of these works. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great having you on Unconfirmed. Laura, thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylan Gallipoli, Factual Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.